0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Hello, I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The Economist science and technology show, Babbage. Today's program is a horocultural special as we pose the question, what can we do to optimize our use of water? We learned some valuable tips from experienced gardeners.
1: If you've done good lawn care, so you've aerated it, you've top dressed it and you have a healthy lawn, it can live without that water for a short time.
2: And
0: we'll ask if the world's water crisis
1: is
2: set to get worse. We run into something called the Jevons paradox, which is when we use a resource more efficiently, very often that leads to using more of that resource ultimately.
0: I love the sounds of a summer garden, grass neatly mowed, hedges trimmed, the roses pruned. But while our annual summer holiday is a relaxed time for us, it is a stressful period for our gardens. Droughts and heat waves can turn the lawn brown and see your favorite flowers wilt and die. So what can we do to help our gardens survive? For this special edition of Babbage, we've teamed up with experts at one of the world's leading botanical gardens, the Royal Horticultural Society's Wisley in Surrey, about 20 miles to the southwest of London. The economist Howard Shannon has been there to meet the curator, Matthew Pottage, and the horticultural advisor, Rebecca Mealy, to learn some top survival tips.
3: What effect does a
4: lack of water have on the plants in our gardens. So there's It becomes a point when plants can't actually grow, they can't function. Plants do depend on something called pressure, which is water running throughout them, and that helps them develop their leaves, their shoots, their extension growth. When that water supply slows down, plants become more stationary, they stop growing, they basically sit. When that supply actually starts to go into a negative and the plant is struggling to keep alive, it may start to show signs of stress, it may start dropping leaves, leaves start shriveling up. And the plant will either shut down to help itself survive eventually it may die
3: so let's say you go on a a summer vacation you're away for two or three weeks and the grass in your garden turns a horrible brown color is that the end for it
1: not necessarily depends on what work you've done prior to to that so if you've done good lawn care so you've aerated it you've top dressed it and you have a healthy lawn it can live without that water for a short time so aeration helps spike the roots and encourages the roots into a deeper level so that there is a healthier lawn so it's more robust and can put and it will regreen after a bit of water but it's not allowing it to get so dry that it won't revive itself
3: watering time of day i've read some reports that say the optimum time for watering it's 4am. Any thoughts on that?
1: <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 yeah, I'm always up for 4. So our irrigation here comes on at about 5am in the morning.
3: Is there any validity in watering a garden at home at
1: 4 o'clock in the morning? Is there any logic behind that? No, just not unless you've had a sleepless night. Any time when the sun's gone down and, and it's, it's not there scorching the lawn, you don't want to be watering in full sun. Because it's,
3: that itself then scorches the lawn.
1: Absolute it's scorched lawn and then also evaporates into the atmosphere. So you lose half the stuff that you're applying, you're losing to the atmosphere anyway.
4: Plant things in the autumn when there's moisture in the ground, if you can, rather than planting things at the start of the summer. It's the idea that they get established and the roots go further down into the ground, yeah? That's right, and plants always establish in slightly warm and moist soil, which you have in the autumn. I know it's more tempting to go to the garden centre when the sun shines in early summer, you plant things into the ground that's about to dry out, so you end up with stressed plants. And then if you have things in containers, move them into the shade, move them up against the north-facing wall. You know, if it's just for, for a period while you're on holiday, even if they're sun-loving plants, they will cope. They'll be happier in shade than they will drying out. And the other thing is just try and avoid plants being really pot-bound. If something is really, really pot-bound, it is going to dry out quicker. The roots have already filled all the available compost, and normally no time at all during, you know hot summer days those things can need watering you know maybe twice a day which just isn't practical if you're going away
1: and also saucers underneath the actual pot so it catches the water because sometimes if a pot has completely dried out what you'll find is the water will run out completely and you think oh it's fine it's all gone in but actually having a, a dish just to catch the runoff it will absorb it better and also if it does rain then that also is captured too
4: if you have pest and disease around, they're going to be first knocking on the door to uh, finish off something that's already in a bit of a state. So when a plant is under stress and is a little bit ill, it's more vulnerable to disease, yeah? It is, yeah, it is. Like us, really, You know, if we're worn out, run down, exhausted, you know, chances are you're going to pick up that virus that's going around when someone did a big sneeze in the office earlier. So same with plants, and we have a lot of woody plants, which are often susceptible to a thing called honey fungus, and you know the plant that's going to come down with the honey fungus is something that's been drought-stricken or it's had a rough time or it's been overwhelmed by something else. Mother Nature tidying up the week.
3: Now on a hot day, I don't know about you, Matthew, but I tend to wilt quite readily. Sometimes I notice plants are wilting. What's happening there?
4: Yeah, they do, and sometimes just in extreme heat and extreme sunlight levels there's a thing called sunflag, sun wilt. Often with plants, they're losing water quicker than they can take it up. You do see that reaction in the leaves. Normally, I mean, if a plant is dry, then it does obviously need watering, but you'll sometimes find the plant is in moist soil, but it's still wilting. That's normal, that's natural, there's not anything you can do. When the temperatures go down, when the sun moves off it, it will kind of work itself out and we rehydrate itself. In the kind of temperatures we've been having with really extreme heat, it's just the plant is losing more than it can take up through its roots.
0: And we'll be back with the experts at the RHS-Wisley later in the program for tips on what drought-tolerant plants we should think of choosing. You're listening to The Economist science and technology show, Babbage. And we're asking the question, what can we do to optimize our use of water? There's a famous quote by Mark Twain, whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting over. Well, researchers at MIT predict that by the middle of the century, more than half of humanity will live in water-stressed areas. The challenge we face now is how to effectively conserve, manage, and distribute the water that we do have. Jan Petrowski is The Economist's environment correspondent. Jan, why are we facing a water crisis?
2: Well, it might seem paradoxical because, um, as many people will know, but two-thirds of the world's, uh, of the globe's surface is covered by water. So it seems that there's plenty of the stuff around. Unfortunately, only a very small fraction, under 3%, is actually fresh water. And of that, only a small fraction is actually easily accessible. In other words, not locked up in glaciers or snowfields or other places uh, which are difficult to tap. So in fact, there is not perhaps as much water as to go around as the blue globe would would suggest. And um, what is more, climate change, in all, all likelihood, is actually exacerbating the problem, because it is making uh, droughts drier and floods wetter, um, and it is often difficult to capture the water uh, during a, a flood period. Um, so a lot of it sort of runs off and is and is wasted, at least temporarily. So, what are
0: the implications of this water shortage?
2: One thing that, that we do need to remember is that water is a renewable resource. There's basically a set amount of it. The problem is not so much that there's less water, it's just that there's less of it that is accessible. And very often it is, uh, it is less accessible in places that need it. For instance, close to large population centres or where people grow crops or indeed where where industry uh, uses a lot of it. So so the problem is making sure that there is enough water in the areas that need it and uh, going to the people that need it. Which parts of the world face the biggest problems? This is actually quite interesting. So on the one hand, you might think that the places which are typically dry face the biggest problems. And that is obviously true, especially in countries which are underdeveloped, like the Sub-Saharan Africa. However, in fact, when you think about it, very often, the places which suffer a lot of water stress are not the places which are sort of naturally deprived of water sources. So I'll give you an example of, of Sao Paulo, where I was a correspondent for three and a half years. Sao Paulo is in Brazil, Brazil is famously uh, the country with by far the world's largest reserves of fresh water. However, a lot of that water is actually locked up in the north, which is sparsely populated. Um, And the south of Brazil, where Sao Paulo lies, is actually very densely populated and has less water. Still, there is a fair amount of water to go around. For instance, even in a record drought year in Sao Paulo, which was 2014, the city itself got something like 1,200 millimeters of water, which is about three times more than Los Angeles gets in in an average year. And um, in some uh, ha- homes in Sao Paulo, uh, taps ran dry. So why is that? And a lot of it has to do with mismanagement of the resources. So for instance, uh, well, the, the, the biggest problem is that water in, in Sao Paulo, and as in many other places in the world, is just grossly underpriced. So people use more of it than per- uh, perhaps they ought to. So in order to, to fix the problem, uh, you would uh, one, of the, one of the best ways to, to manage water better is to is to set a, a good price on it this of course can be politically tricky because it's it's difficult to set a price on something which for many people seems to be a free resource that falls out of the sky
0: to what degree is agriculture and horticulture to blame for our water crisis
2: well it's difficult to say that it's it, it, to blame and um, the the incentives are such that in many parts of the world where certain crops probably should not be grown. They are. The thirsty crops are being grown in places which need to be irrigated, which do not get enough enough rainwater to, to sustain these crops. And that is a, a question of, of certain incentives which have been put in place often a very long time ago and that are difficult to shift. And there's a lot of talk and this in fact does happen in, in both Israel and California, precision agriculture is growing. So actually using water much more efficiently. And that is all fine, but we we run into something called the Jevons paradox which is when we use a resource more efficiently, very often that leads to using more of that resource ultimately because using something more efficiently means that we can produce more of the stuff and we produce even more of the stuff uh, using even more of the original resource than we would have with the less efficient technology. So one very st- striking example along the Colorado River is for instance um, using a drip irrigation. What used to happen when you would use for instance flood irrigations, so or just flood you'd take water from the river to to water farmland in in a non precise an imprecise way uh, a lot of that uh, water would would subsequently return to the river as runoff and could be used by f- uh, by farmers down river now water is drawn in and um, dozed basically very, very carefully to too many plants and is locked up in things like grapefruit rather than um, running off uh, downriver. And therefore, uh, this puts water stress on, on farmers downstream. So so um, there are Problems with, with many of the technological solutions uh, that people use to preserve water and, uh, and a sort of a more, more global, more, more holistic approach needs to be found in order to uh, genuinely optimize water use. Jan, thank you very much. Thank you. If you have any thoughts on how
0: to solve the impending water crisis or you just have a tip on keeping the grass green, then do please put them in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com. Or tweet us at Economist Radio. So, with water becoming an increasingly scarce resource, we need to think about adapting our gardens to better survive a drought or a heat wave. Some plants are naturally adapted to thrive with little or no watering. Our reporter Howard Shannon is back with the garden team at RHS Wisley for their planting recommendations. In a moment, curator Matthew Pottage and garden manager Emma Allen. But first, horticultural advisor Rebecca Mealy.
1: Now,
3: Rebecca, here in the Tractorant Garden, you're looking at what's called a succulent. What's this one?
1: So, that would be sedums. So, these have got the succulent leaves, and the, that's their way of coping with the drought. So, it's how they store their water. Um, and they have quite a flat flower with like little stars that open up and you can reduce it in height with a chelsea top so it keeps it lower to the ground um so it doesn't you know display open but then you have like these nice gorgeous little star flowers that open on that flat plate um and the bees and the butterflies love them
3: and they're very low growing is that was that one of the things that helps them get through a drought
1: absolutely yeah so it's, it's just the fact that that they're the low growing they cover the surface of the ground and and then also it helps you with your weeding so you don't have to worry too much about the, the, the ground cover.
3: It's a beautiful sort of grey tinge to them, isn't it? It looks yeah, like they've been get... covered in a very light, fine sort of icing
1: sugar. Sometimes. Absolutely, and you can get purple leaved ones as well, which are quite striking, and, and you can use them as contrasts between the silver foliage of other um, plants for drought gardens.
4: One plant group that would that spring straight to mind, there's so many of them and they're so different, are eryngiums, so, uh, more commonly known as the sea holly. And they come in different colours of silvers, whites and blues. Some of them do look a bit thistle-like. They often have a rosette of foliage, a rosette of leaves and then a, a flower head comes up through that. And summer flowering normally reliably long-lived so they will, you know, be there year on year. And they just, they love a bit of direct sun, hot temperatures they like good drainage but the kind of summers we're getting is a real opportunity to, to show off something like that we have an area known as our glasshouse borders at Wisley where we've had eryngium yuccifolium growing for years lovely little white flower head really pretty, you can grow it through the grasses or the perennials just a really good doer, really good garden plant
3: joined by Emma Allen here at RHS Wisley. Emma, what plant are you going to contribute to our drought-tolerant garden?
1: It's Nigella damascena. This is an annual. It reaches about 15 inches in height And it has lovely white or blue flowers uh, surrounded with a kind of feathery green structure. Really beautiful. It uh, has amazing papery seed heads as well. And it will come up every year from seed and you can just take one seed head, scatter it around and next year we'll have loads of beautiful plants.
0: And on that fragrant and colourful note, that's all for this week's edition of Babbage. Our thanks to the Royal Horticultural Society for their help in making this programme. And don't forget, you can pick up this week's Economist from the newsstand just as you can pick up a flower from a field, and you can find us online at economist.com. From the fields of London, this is The Economist.